0: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast in 2021. This is the first episode of season three, Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, although this is episode 53. This is our first episode in a new season. Welcome here. Turn the calendar. I'm not sure if we've turned much more other than that, but uh, so glad that you're here. Thanks for taking the time. We know that there's a ton of podcasts out there that you could be uh, listening to, and we just appreciate the time that you're spending to listen to this one. we got a great episode for you. This is Rita Gower. She is the chair of Culinary, Bakery, and Pastry Arts at VIU on Vancouver Island, in beautiful British Columbia. We sit down and talk a little bit about her past, how she got into the trade, what she's doing in her department. And specifically, we're talking about leveraging for diversity and the power of cohorts. So you're gonna love this one. Sit back, relax, go for a walk, put the earbuds in, all that other stuff, good deal. Thanks for taking the time. We'll catch you on the other side. two one hey everybody welcome back to praxis pedagogy podcast this is our first podcast of 2021 and i'm excited it's a new season it's a new season sally i
1: know very exciting hold on to your hats
0: yeah we're hopping (laughs) we're gonna be hopping (laughs) and uh you know despite that train wreck that's going on down south but uh you know this uh this episode won't be released for a tiny bit but uh Everyone who's listening will not have forgotten, but uh, we remember people down there, we remember people up here. Good to have you, everybody with us listening. Nice to have you, hope you had a good holiday, it's all good. We have a very special guest with us this morning. This is Rita, Rita Gower, did I say that correctly? Gower? Yep. Yeah, oh, see, I'm I'm on fire this morning. Uh I did not wake up at four in the morning, like uh, like Rita, but you know, that's okay. Woke up at, you know, six which is good. Anyway, this we have Rita with us this morning. Rita, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Why don't you take a few minutes to introduce yourself to us and our listeners, and then uh, we'll get right into it.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. That's, I've never been on a podcast before. I probably never will be again, but...
0: Oh, don't say that. We, <laughs> yes. we, we, we have a notorious track record for bringing people back.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, my name is Rita Gower, and I work at Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, and I'm in the Faculty of Trades. I'm currently the Chair of Culinary Arts and Professional Baking Programs. I started out as a cook in the industry when I was 23 years old um, and doing an apprenticeship. And then um, I gradually shifted from cooking to baking and pastry, which... uh, I sort of realized as I was working in the kitchen that that's where I really liked to be. And uh, in my career, prior to teaching, I worked at a lot of hotels and clubs um, in Canada and in England in London. And I've also had a couple of entrepreneurial baking businesses. I had a small baking business on Quadra Island where I lived for 10 years. And then I had an online cake business when I was living here in and I'm, um, from about 2008 to 2011. I started teaching at VAU um, in 2004. I was a relief instructor. And um, yeah, I guess we'll talk more about that as
1: we get on.
0: Oh, we will. Oh, I've already got juicy uh, questions. Conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah. One busy lady. I mean, that's what you hear, is it? one oh, very busy person.
0: Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So well, Quadra Island i mm-hmm. I I've, I've been to Quadra. Quadra is awesome. Um what was that like?
2: It was great. It was one of I've lived a lot of places in the world and Quadra is definitely one of my favorites. We we lived um in a octagonal house that had a turret. Um we Oh a no house.
0: way. I know that house.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, if you drive up um Harriet Bay Road up to the northern part of the island, you would go past it on your left. But um yeah, it was it was a um it was a complete shell when my husband and I bought it. We moved there because um we got work at April Point Resort, which is a big oh, reason. My yeah.
0: honeymoon there.
2: Oh, there you go. <laughs> and uh, and so we bought this place. that had no finished walls, no finished floors, it had one bathroom, it had no doors, it had no countertop, it had nothing, right? It had no heat.
0: <laughs> <It was just laughs> Sounds like quadra.
2: Yeah, it was a typical
0: quadra. Sounds like quadra.
1: We're about um, to hear now how Rita then went into carpentry or something. She yeah, quickly right. took yep. the carpentry yep. course, Marantz refinished Hillbaker the house, not yeah. <laughs> getting up at four in the morning to bake. That's yes. Right. <laughs> no, that's,
2: I, I, I'm sorry, I can't, can't say Um No, we, we worked on it for a couple of years. And we did a major, huge, major renovations. and it's a, It's an amazing place. Um, my husband at that time was very, I was a very artistic person and we did a lot of interesting things in the house. So it was a typical funky quadra house and, uh, yeah, and it was on an acre of property and I had a fish pond and, um, we had a huge market garden. That was one, of another entrepreneurial enterprise that I had, um, where I was selling vegetables and flowers and so on to, um, to local restaurants and at the farmer's market and so on.
0: That's yeah. so cool. Okay. And so online bakery. So like I would go online order a something from you and would and get delivered or would I come pick it up?
2: No, that was um, so that was a cake business. Um, it, we were selling our main product was um, whiskey fruit cakes, a single malt whiskey. Oh, fruit cakes. So you could you. Go, online and, <laughs> you go
0: online
2: and order those and, um, and we would ship them to you. But we also did um, a lot of Christmas markets, of course, all over Vancouver Island, um, from sort of beginning of November up to middle of December. So we were, you know, we were selling thousands of these things.
0: No kidding, yeah. <laughs> single malt whiskey. I wonder if any of them went missing in the mail, right? The mail, mail yeah. guys, like, uh, this is not a this typical parcel.
2: I should take it home. I'm just going <laughs> to keep
0: this in the back of my car for a little while. Yeah. okay what was the turning point so you said that you you went into cooking first and i know a tiny bit about cooking my my uncle was a red seal chef but um what what was the turning point for you where you decided okay i want to get out of cooking and into baking and pastry because i mean obviously they're they're in that broader umbrella of culinary but they're two different trades like the yeah, they
2: yeah, they are. And and so I was working in uh my apprenticeship was done in Calgary at the Weston under Fred Zimmerman, who's uh at that time uh in the seven what was that the eighties, the early eighties. He was a very um well, he was one of the top chefs in Canada, culinary Olympic star and all of that. Ill tempered, very ill tempered. And um It goes with so, the territory though, doesn't it? Yeah, well <laughs> I apparently had to do anger management later on in his career because oh it was, it was no longer cool to yell and scream and you know, oh, sensitivity
0: training in the kitchen.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I digress.
0: That's okay. Yeah. We digress a lot around here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in a, in a culinary apprenticeship or a cooking apprenticeship, you go through these different areas. Like I worked breakfast for a few months. I worked on the line in the fine dining room for a few months. And, um, you know, but the one area I really didn't get to in my apprenticeship there was the pastry department. And I was, it just didn't happen. And I wouldn't dare ask, you know, Chef Zimmerman to, can I, can I go work in pastry? Cause he was just what he yelled and screamed. And um, so when I, when I went to uh, my husband and I went on a big trip around Europe for nine months, and we ended up in England. And we had working holiday visas, and we got a place to live in London. Then, and, and I worked in London for a couple of years. So I started out, you know, as a I got a job as a um, like a garmanche or cook in um, a nice place in uh, Piccadilly Circus, and um, and then you know they I asked them could I go and work in the pastry department after I'd been there for about six months, and so they said okay. And then the, that chef left and we went, he took me with him and some of the other cooks and we went to a, um, a high-end gambling club on Park Lane. And
0: oh, high-end gambling <laughs> club?
2: Yeah. And it had like, Bun- it had, you know, the bunnies, like the Playboy bunny type, you know, in their green velvet little suits. Yeah. Sally's ears just <laughs> picked yeah. up.
0: Barkley Lane? Like-
2: yeah, Lane? Yeah, Park Lane. yeah. yeah. And... And so I started in in the pastry department there. So they had like five restaurants in that establishment, all of which had, you know, pastry carts or dessert menus and so on. So that's where I really got into it. And then when I returned to Canada, to Vancouver, um, I worked at the uh, Meridian Hotel, which had just opened in 1986 for Expo 86. So I worked there for a couple of years. And then I had my first child. And then we moved to Souk. And um, we started working at the Sue Carver House. Um, Also been there. Yeah. (laughs) Lovely place. And now it's all finished, of course. But yeah. um, Yeah. So I I worked in the pastry area there. And then another child came along. And then then we went to Vancouver for a bit and then up to Quadra.
1: Wow. Rita, you have really been busy. I suddenly feel like I didn't really maximize my potential here. <laughs> could have been doing so much more.
0: Wow. Oh man. Incredible,
1: yeah. Incredible journey though, Rita. And I mean, I, I know as we carry on with this conversation, we're going to draw on some of those experiences really, because they have, you know, I've worked alongside you now for, well, probably since 2004. Um, and as you were telling your you know, your story there. You haven't left these places behind because I've seen them actually come into play many of those influences in your, you know, your work at VIU. So I'm just gonna sit back because I know Tim's got some great questions there for you. And and um yeah, I'm no I'll pressure. I'll sit back. Yes, no, no pressure <laughs> Rita. <laughs>
0: so I, I wanna go back and like, what's it like to have a traveling working visa like does that mean you yeah, just plunk uh, down for a bit? And-
2: yeah. So that was something that great Britain offers to uh, Commonwealth citizens. Okay. So like if you're from Canada or Australia or, or one of the other Commonwealth countries. And so, you know, basically you can apply for it outside of England and, and that program this program no longer exists. Unfortunately, oh, Australia still has one, but um, not, yeah. Yeah.
0: Nobody wants to crazy. go to live in Australia. They got like everybody's dangerous animal and pet down there. Right. Like nobody wants to live down there.
1: Yeah. To.
0: Sorry to all you Australian listeners. I know I've got a few. Actually, I've got a few in Australia. Sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting. I'm just too excited. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so we were able to apply for that visa. I think we got it in uh, Austria, I believe. And um, and then we, you know, so we had it and it was stamped into our passports. And when we arrived in England, we just showed that at the border and it and entitled it. What it says is you are entitled to work in temporary sorts of positions. It's for a maximum of two years. And, um, you're allowed to leave the country and re-enter again. You know, like if you want to go on a holiday or something, but it must be temporary sorts of work. They really stress that. But the reality was we could have done anything we wanted once we got through the border, which we did.
0: (laughs) Which we did. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was great. It was a great experience.
0: That's amazing. That's cool. So, uh, Tell us a little bit more about your trade, because I know it's more than what we see on the stinking reality TV shows.
2: Oh, I hate those shows.
0: Yeah, I thought you might.
2: Well, you know, I really like to with all these types of shows, whether it's about cooking or singing or whatever, I really like to watch people do their thing and their craft, you know, and I really don't care about their backstory at all. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it directly relates to what they're doing. So I, 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 don't like the focus of those shows, but to me, you know, in the trade, you know, either cooking or baking, it's really about, you know, being able to make quality products over and over again, you know, with a consistent outcome and uh, you need to be able to work in a clean and organized and efficient manner and think about costs. You need to like being on your feet and being able to move quickly. And um, you have to be able to work well with others. You know, if you can't work well with others, you're sunk. So, you know, and I think you also have to be on the lookout for new ways of doing things all the time. Like every day I see, you know, when I'm in the kitchens or whatever, I see, you know, a new way to do something or, you know, a smarter way to do something or a more effective way and so on. So you're always learning. There's a, And cooking has changed so much from, you know, and baking from when I started out to what it is today. I mean, it's just like, light years of advancement. It's amazing.
0: So you mean advancements in, in, in implement? techniques,
2: when you think of the whole molecular gastronomy thing, um, just the, the skills that people have, you know, if you look at cookbooks from the seventies and eighties, you know, and, and pastry books and so on, and what people were doing, they, compared to what they're doing today, it's just like the skill that people have now and, and sort of the level of uh, accomplishment that's expected is, Mm. is just, you know, the bar has been raised so much higher.
0: So does that make it tougher for students who want to get into uh, the trade? They may not realize that that bar is so high, or do they even know that it's changed?
2: No, I don't think they know. Um, You know, they just come in and they start learning. And as long as they have a, you know, a competent instructor who can you know show them, um, you know, what's expected and how to do these things, you know, they, they just, It's just normal
0: to them, you know? Right. I guess in some regards, it's no different than some other trades, right? Getting along well with others. Absolutely. You're you're learning new stuff every day. You're going to learn stuff from different people, and then you'll be expected to put together your own toolbox of how you approach things and how you build things or how you approach difficult situations. So in that regard, it's not much different than my own trade, right?
1: I spent a very short time in the Culinary Arts Department at VIU. We had a Christmas office party and so we were set the task of preparing food, I think, for about 40 people. And it was a set menu and we were all assigned our own specific dishes that we were to make. And myself and our Dean Esteem, we were given the the. We, we were to make the Mexican tortillas and I believe we had to make the salsa as well. But what really got me was the the harmony of everything that you're doing in line with these. I think there were maybe eight other groups of two you know teams of two that were also working to prepare all of this food and to be an instructor in that place I mean the instructor that worked with us that day uh, Jenny Arison. I mean she she had us all there not one of us had any experience in this kitchen I mean it's quite it's orchestrated in a way that is there is this harmony throughout the kitchen in order for all of this food to come to fruition all at the same time, quite remarkable.
0: Yeah. I remember my uncle saying that it's, it's almost like conducting an orchestra, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have everybody doing their, their thing and certain people are really good. They have their own little specialty and they're in their niche area, but you're still responsible for making sure that whole kitchen runs harmoniously. And he, he he was in a couple of restaurant situations too, where he 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 would often tell me it's not just the back end; you got to take care of the front end too, and you have good people and all that other stuff. But you know, they're really balancing the whole show. Is that is that ring true for you, Rita, in your absolutely. experience? Absolutely, yeah.
2: absolutely. And that's a good analogy. You know, conducting an orchestra because the chef, the chef or the sous chef or the instructor has all the whole thing in their head, and they're watching it being executed and tweaking it here and tweaking it there and to me, one of the big differences between a student in in our programs and somebody who's graduated and is now out in, the, out in the industry is the ability to shift from that student mindset, which is I'm working on this thing right in front of me and um, I'm not looking over here to see what that person's doing, even though I'm going over there next week and we'll have to do that thing. <laughs> but they're just like, so... Oh, uh. And, but, you know, as they get better and more confident, they start to look up and look around and realize that actually I need to be paying attention to all these things. I can't just be focused on my little part here um, because that doesn't work. In a yeah, for thing. sure.
0: So what drew you to teaching your trade?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, that's a story. Um <laughs> OK, she, so, Rita is definitely coming back, isn't she? There, without a doubt we're, we're. you know, you're never going to get away with a one off here, Rita. We have so many questions for you.
0: Pull the trigger early.
1: <laughs> well,
2: um, by the. T- uh, so somewhere in there and the stories I've already told you, uh, my husband and I separated and divorced. And I remarried and um my new husband um well he's actually you know I've been married to him longer than the first one, but
0: <laughs> my new husband
2: I call him I, I call him the new guy. <laughs> the um, new guy. <laughs> he builds bridges and um and so um like literally right after we got married um uh, we went and lived in Hong Kong for a year, we What? Quadra. Yeah.
0: You went from Quadra Island to Hong Kong? Yeah, that was that was That's shock. a bit of a culture shock. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it definitely was. And then we came back to Quadra for less than a year. And then we went to Greece for four years. What? Then, yeah, we lived there for four years. And then we went to South Carolina, to Charleston for a year.
0: Oh. And
2: so meanwhile, I'm dragging my two kids around with us. Right. And they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And um, because they were sort of doing six months with me and six months with their dad, who lives here in the where where I am. So anyway, in 2004, I finally said, okay, enough of this. And we moved back to Nanaimo. My husband, kept he went on to China and India and all these different places, Middle East. But um, yeah, so we settled in Nanaimo. And so my husband, my ex-husband said to me, um, you know, you should apply for work as a relief instructor at the college. Because at that time it was Malaspina College. You know, because they need people like you, you you've you got your, your red seal and you, you've got experience in baking, too. And you live close by, you know, a lot of the relief instructors live in Courtney or they live on the mainland or whatever. So it's really hard to get someone at four in the morning or five in the morning. Hey, you know, can you come in? And I thought, oh, I, I can't teach. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> Who
0: wants to do that?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I just I I just thought that was a terrible idea, so I just <laughs> I just didn't do anything about it. I didn't apply, and a couple months later, the chair uh, at that time, Debbie Shore, phones me up and says to me, "Well, it's Debbie Shore um, at the Culinary Arts Program. I guess you know why I'm calling." I said. The, no, why are you
1: calling?
2: <laughs> well, I you know I just wondered if you wanted to come in for an interview, right? So I came in for an interview and um she said, Well, why don't you give it a try? Because I really wasn't very enthusiastic. And uh, <laughs> well, the next thing you know, I'm doing two training shifts and uh, and then they plunked me into a class. I would start teaching the new intakes, right, in the food lab. So not only am I like teaching, but I there's all this, there's cameras and there's a microphone and
0: uh, anyway. Both so, feet, anyway.
2: And, and, yeah, and no, the no. funny thing
0: is like, you're so reluctant. It's like, yeah, nah, I'm not, no, I'm not really into that. Nah, well, I def- always
2: thought of myself as like, I'm shy. and I am. I'm shy and quiet. Most people find me to be shy and quiet. Right. Yeah. I've had a cup of coffee, so I seem fairly gregarious <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you've been up since four. So this is midday for you. We're good.
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So that's how
0: wow. it happened. Wow. Yeah. So what's been, how's the evolution of your, of your trajectory from when you first started to now? Like uh, I, I I often think like, what's it, what's it, what's it mean to be an educator for you? And And it's more than just educating there's facilitating and all of that involved with that. But what's that, what's that mean to you? How's that evolved for you since you started?
2: Well, I knew nothing. You know, when, when I started back in those first days, you know, I I was given a curriculum to teach, but I really had no idea how to, uh, other than you know, no, you know, cut it like this, not like that. I had no overarching philosophy for teaching and whatsoever. I mean, I I just couldn't have been more ignorant of the entire process. And um, yeah, so I I I guess enrolling in the um, PIDP program, you know, the instructors diploma program at VCC was helpful because it sort of introduced me to the idea of, you know, you have learning outcomes and, you know, by the end of your course, what can your student do and what do you hope that they're able to come away with and that whole type of thing. I mean, I just, I just didn't have a clue. So doing the PIDP program really introduced me to all, all those ideas and, and very gradually I started implementing them in um, in what I was doing. But my issue was, is that I was a relief instructor for 15 years. So I was constantly stepping into other people's shoes. Right. So, you know, I'd step in for, you know, so-and-so sick and they're off for two or three days. I teach their program for two or three days. I go in to look at what they've got. Well, usually they had nothing or almost nothing. It's all in their heads. So, you know, I had to, like, I really spent a lot of time, um, just winging it because <laughs> there was nothing there <laughs> for me to grab onto, you know? And then, so that continued um, up till 2011. And then, um, Martin Barnett, who is the uh, chair of baking, um, gave me a chance to do, to teach, him um, an introduction to baking course, for, um, force people who were, um, sort of chronically underemployed, if you will. So I had some, some young people in there. I had some people in their thirties and forties and, you know, they were all on EI and um, having lots of trouble finding work. So it was a three month program to, you know, give them some basic skills to get entry level jobs in the banking industry. So uh, that was my first experience of actually designing my own course and teaching it. And that taught me a lot. Right. And, um and, you know, it, you know, I look back on it and it was uh, I'm sure there were many things I could have done much, much better knowing what I know now, but yeah, it, you know, it was so good to be able to um, develop something, deliver it and see the results, you know? And I just, after years of sort of jumping in here and there, and, you know, it was, it was really nice to have that experience from start to finish. And that kind of solidified things for me to some degree. So that was 2011. Then I, um, I started getting longer stints, you know, so, you know, Martin Barnett, you know, he, he took two, um, three months sabbaticals. He went to Australia once he went to Europe once. So I filled in for him, you know, for three months at a time. So, you know, nice long stints like that are, are really helpful to sort of, you know, get your feet under you. And, um, and then, you know, I started getting more regular, Um, types of postings and culinary as well so you know things got a lot got better in that way and then at the same time I joined the um, teaching and learning council that our uh, teaching center um, had and so I was with them for three years and that was also really helpful they did a lot of professional development for us and um, excuse me and they you know, just, I did a lot of presentations. I did a huge number of, you know, presenting to different parts of the university and, you know, a lot of academic stuff and, um, you know, took part in a lot of the seminars and, um, presentations that they would put on annually. And, and so I'm really into that. And then in 2015, I also had started my master's of education, which was okay. life changing. And um, Where, where'd you go for that? VIU. <laughs> I BAU? just went to a different building.
0: Okay. <laughs> Keeping it local.
2: Yeah. Well, um, Sally had inspired me, right? Because, you know, I knew she was doing her her master's at that point, and but she was going to SFU. And I just couldn't imagine, you know, the ferry trips. So I hadn't really done anything about it. And then I heard that um the masters of uh, educational leadership was Um, looking to take instructors, you know, with prior using prior learning assessment, because I don't have a bachelor's, I have a diploma, you know, and I did take a whole year of first year university courses back in the uh, 90s, but no, no bachelor's. So I applied and got in and did really well. And um, it was great. It was just so great. Just and it was something I wanted to do, right? Like, I kind of screwed up my, my early uh, education, you know, in high school, you know, things happened and I didn't actually graduate. And, uh, and I went to college after that and didn't do well at that. I just wasn't able to focus. Right. And, um, but, you know, I, I still felt like I wanted to try something like this. Anyway, I was definitely ready to do it.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Same here. I I have a master's degree in leadership from Royal roads university. So I took the ferry the other way. And, um, and again, yeah, life changing. I mean, I think that's actually the, their stinking motto or it's life dot changing dot. Right. But I don't, I don't think it matters. Well, it probably does matter, but I don't think it matters too much where you go at that, at that point, like as an, as an adult who has tons of life experience, you've done a red seal trade. So it's not like you haven't been to school. You, it's just looked different, right? It, mm. I spent four years in my trade learning how to do what I do. And then really you're not done learning. No. And then you're in this whole new environment and learning new things again. And then you go to a master's degree and it's almost like, and especially if you really want to be there, like it's just a whole, it's a whole new world. And and yeah, yeah like totally. Oh, I excited.
1: think as well, one of the great things is because I know I mean, the reason I went to SFU, because I think it was about 20 years ago that Jeff Maddock Jones, um, dear Jeff, who's no longer with us, but he was one of the the, you know, profs over at SFU that said, hang on a minute, we're missing all of this, you know, this opportunity of having this diversity in our classroom and and mm-hmm. recognizing the the educational backgrounds of tradespeople. So I know he was instrumentally in, in putting in that clause around non-traditional learners. And so that's why at that time, when I went to SFU, they were the institution that were accept, accepting that um, you know, trajectory of learners, but the diversity it brought into the classroom. And I think you know, I've heard that Rita and I have chatted about this because we do have similar paths in that way, um, Mm. is that, you know, you arrive in those classrooms sat alongside academics. And to begin with, that can be seen as, you know, there are rumblings in the classroom of how did you manage to get into the master's program without an undergrad? But as the, as the two years roll out, the whole hierarchy sort of changes in the Classroom. And I think that so it's done, you know, this it's done a lot for trades as well, because I, I mean, Rita's been, you know, not bragging here, but um, her colleagues, you know, they speak so highly of the work that she did in her master's program rolled out. And that's across the university as well. So I think that um, it's beneficial to everybody that's there in those cohorts. You learn so much from each other. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And it wasn't just me in that cohort either. It was um, There was Diana from Electrical and Paul Mottershead, who's the associate, one of the other associate dean of our trade. And um, is there somebody else.
1: And he was heavy mechanical trade. So at that point, yeah. he was, I mean, I think he'd just gone into the associate dean's position, but only for a few weeks. And then so really his leap was from heavy mechanical trades into a master. The program and so it's interesting to see so you know we've got a bit of a we haven't actually got a tidal wave of people taking it yet but it's beginning <laughs> isn't it it's trickling over to that that direction
2: yeah and all the rest of the cohort were um in in the high school system right or they were in oh. the k-12 system
1: Yeah.
2: and i just remember saying once to the in class you know something about the relentless focus of these courses on K (laughs) to 12. We we open it up a little people.
0: Yeah. um, Yeah. yeah,
2: It was funny, but you know what? It was, um, it was all the uh, instructors that taught us were really loved having us Mm -hmm. and the perspective that we brought into that. They really liked it.
0: Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. So when when Sally talks about diversity, it reminds me of a, of an article that you were part of a little while ago called Leveraging for Diversity. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it oh. I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about how that emerged for you and what you've learned in that process.
2: What article is that, Sally? <laughs>
1: I, I don't know. I don't know where Tim got this article from. Oh, anyone. I was doing
0: some research and uh it was wait it's a couple of years ago, but it was um it was oh, this
2: is um probably from the teaching and learning council type. Yeah. Right?
0: It caught my eye because it's it's a still a hot topic, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um so well, you know, each year when we were on the teaching and learning council, we there was a focus. And so one year it was um focusing on the increasing amounts of non-traditional learners coming to BIU. And uh, particularly in culinary arts at that time, starting in about 2009, we started to see more and more international students. At the same time, we are seeing increasing waves of um, students with various sorts of disabilities. So lots of people on the autistic spectrum, um, lots of uh, mental health issues like anxiety, which has just become like, like an epidemic worse than the COVID thing. And, um, And, you know, and then there were indigenous students who, you know, had various sorts of struggles. And so, you know, if, if I looked at my time of teaching from 2004, when I started to 2009, I would have said that the majority of students were more or less traditional learners. They were from our local catchment area. They, you know, had sort of traditional types of backgrounds and some of them did better than others, but there was not it was not this, um, There was there was no sense that the overwhelming uh, majority had some sort of struggle, or at least not that I could see. But then that all started to shift in 2009 and just got more and more different as time went on. So by the time I joined that council in 2014, I guess it was. um, International students were really making an impact on the entire university. So we formed a group and we went around to different faculties and interviewed. We went to their um, their faculty meetings and we interviewed instructors and talked to them about all this. And it was like they hadn't even really thought about it. They, they all agreed. Indeed, yes, there were a lot more international students. None of them had a clue how to effectively teach them or include them or make their learning successful. It, it was just they viewed it more as a, as a struggle, you know, because there were language issues and there were um Uh, culture issues, you know, the, the students, well, you know, students are lonely, they're homesick, they're, you know, all these different things, they have no uh, support and and plus they can't speak the language. And um, anyway, so the, the, that just all manifested as students who were struggling and, you know, the instructors had no idea how to deal with it. They didn't feel supported by the administration And at that point, that was, you know, international students were sort of seen as, you know, a a cash cow without any thought given, in my opinion, to how to properly support them and the instructors who were teaching them. So we sort of went on this gathering uh, fact finding mission. And I think out of that, that's where that paper came from, which I really have no idea of or have no uh, memory of writing. (laughs) I've written a lot of stuff since then. We're glad Tim found it.
1: What's that? We're glad Tim found it. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, um,
2: so it became about um, how do you you deal with all these issues, right? And um, I think for me, um, and this was part of my thesis too, you know, the, the light bulb went on when I realized that actually nearly everyone has some kind of issue right? It was, some are much more <laughs> obvious
0: than others. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it just sounds so, rings so true today. It's like, yeah, we all have our issues. Sorry, yeah, I just and, to... and
2: some of us are better at dealing with them than others. Some of us are yeah. better at hiding them than others, you know? Yeah, true. But, true. but the fact is, um, if you put supports into place for, you know, and it's like, you can't put, I, I'm going to teach this way for someone who's on the spectrum. I'm going to teach this way to someone who's i got english as a second language but you can't do that right so you've got to go back to and find some basic ideas that are going to help everyone and um and so that is why um you know that idea of leveraging for diversity and putting these plans into place and these ideas into place will help everyone um even if they are they have no issues whatsoever right it's going to help everybody it just it floats all boats you know rising tide floats all boats or whatever that thing is um, and i and i feel like in my thesis like i you know that was sort of the beginning of it that leveraging for diversity but in my thesis i really honed in on that and realized that the very best way to support students, particularly in cohorts, is to build a healthy cohort, cohort. Because cohorts are a great idea, right? Like people, you know, travel together, they learn together in a group, they move through programs together, and they can you know, support each other. But if you don't take care to create a healthy cohort at the beginning of the program, these cohorts you know by month nine or ten can become quite destructive you know so some students you know their gossips or they're you know they start talking about other students there's little cliques that form and so on and so i realized that cohorts are great cohorts are preferable to just having individual students going on a, a a learning journey through various courses in a program but it's important to build a healthy cohort. And um, I know in my master's program, the first weekend that, you know, we went on the Saturday and the Sunday to class, that first weekend, that's all we did was learn about each other and agree on how we were going to um, behave towards each other and the kinds the kind of class um, we wanted to have, you know, and the kinds of um, behaviors that were gonna be acceptable. And we would, like literally wrote a rule book and, I just was so impressed that it would take two whole days of our master's program to do that, you know, and as time went on, I saw how valuable it was because we always held to that standard of behavior, you know, through two years. And, um, and so of course, in, in our programs in in culinary and baking, um, we have cohorts and uh, in baking, I had the opportunity for the past four years to build very strong cohorts. And, uh, and, you know, we spent the first week of orientation every day spending, you know, 45 minutes or so figuring stuff like this out through various methods. And, uh, and it worked really well because in baking, you know, it's the same group with only two instructors for 10 months. And I had seen in the past how fractured they be- could become and you know by the end people were so fed up with each other and you know so i just thought well we can do better and um yeah so i it was really great to sort of have that that revelation and then be able to put it into practice and see that it actually does work
0: What were some things that you did with your students to create that that cohesiveness because you know building a team with people you know is is one thing but building a team or a cohort of people you don't know mm-hmm. like, how, how did how did that we did that
2: we like? we do it through a process called a check-in so the um you know i mean everybody knows sort of what a check-in is but they're structured check-ins so lots of check-ins tend to have um you know, people just go around and say what's on their mind, but these are really, really highly structured. So they're, what I'll do is um, the rules are you can, you know, everyone sits in a circle, everybody can see everyone else's face. Um, We have a talking stick. So in my case, uh, the talking stick is a a wooden spoon. It's about, it's about three feet long, big wooden spoon. And we pass that around. And whoever's holding that gets to talk. So there's no cross talk or anything like that. And then um, usually I'll have a PowerPoint up and it will have the question or questions and people go around their circle and they respond to the question. And then we go around again and uh, they can respond. Like if somebody said something in the previous go around that someone thought, oh, you know, they can respond. And uh, so that's basically the structure. And so I might show a video so uh, um, one year in uh, teaching and learning council, we were doing a thing on metacognition. So I showed the students a few metacognition videos, um, and you know, and then you you know have some questions for them. You let them look at the questions first. We watch a two-minute video, and then they go around and give their opinions. Um, you know, a few of the check-ins will be structured around you know, what do you think? How would you like to be treated in this program? You know, what 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 are your expectations of? how to behave towards others and how others would behave towards you and so on. And, and in that way, in that sort of, you know, in that consensus gathering way, um, arrived at, um, things like, you know, how we want to behave towards each other, what kind of learning is expected from the student, you know, um, that idea of don't just show up and, um, hope that, you know, the fact that you didn't read the material or aren't prepared for class is somehow going to escape unnoticed. And the idea of, you know, digging deeper into things and making connections rather than just reciting back facts and information. So that's sort of the idea of it. Anyway, I like, uh, in the orientation for baking, we had a whole week of, um, these check-ins structured and, uh, We would do them first thing in the morning when everyone came in. And when I worked in culinary, we also did it when they have a three week orientation. So every day we would do a check in um, again, highly structured. And uh, it was it's such a great way to sort of get people, um, of course, you know, building the cohort. But it's a great way to start the day too. everybody feels really connected. I feel really connected to the students. And, uh, you know, on the odd day when we wouldn't do a check in. It was very, um, it was a strange day. You know, <laughs> everything felt kind of off. We didn't, we hadn't kind of.
1: One thing I'm hearing there, Rita, is that, you know, I, I remember going back to 2000 and we we started to, you know, in, in teaching and learning practice we were doing things like check-ins and um, setting time aside for these, you know, these informal check-ins at the beginning of class or the end of class. But one thing I really picked up on what you said there was that it was very deliberate. There was an intended outcome with every one of these sessions. So thinking about culinary, the the shift there is from, you know, these early day check-ins in 2000, which, I mean, I remember working with cohorts then, and even these check-ins could become sort of the foundation of the fractures within the, the cohorts. But you've done something very different because it's what I'm hearing is that every day there was a very deliberate, whether it's metacognition. Um, specific communications. And I'm just, as, as you're saying that, wondering how life-changing that actually was for your students. You know, you're speaking about your master's being life-changing, but what was kind of the responses that you got from students about that, that process? Yeah,
2: yeah, that's a great question. Um, so at, on the final day of check-ins, the, the question always was, What did you think of these check-ins? What did, what, what came out of it for you? And it was just amazing because, you know, going around the circle especially in culinary, you know, um, I often wondered how the international students were doing because of course it's all speaking and, and um, it's all oral and verbal and that, which is what they struggle with the most right there. And so, I was always especially interested to hear what they thought. And everyone said, without exception, that they loved doing them, that they they came into the program not knowing what to expect. They didn't know anyone, and now they feel comfortable and they they feel like they know people and they feel like there's support there for them. And uh, the international students said exactly the same thing that they were so scared when they came in and and now they they feel like you know they know everyone and and they you know, they just feel like they're at home, and for me, the whole point of you know one of the essential things about building these cohorts in a healthy way is to provide that that support for students where they're gonna if when when the struggles hit, which inevitably at some point most students are gonna hit a wall of some sort or other that they have. If they don't feel comfortable going to their chair or the instructor or whoever it is, they can turn to one of these uh, one of their colleagues, one of their fellow students, because they've got a relationship with them and they can, um, you know, talk to them about it. And maybe, you know, that's the difference between them like failing the program or dropping out of the program and staying and being successful, you know? So that is my ultimate goal there is to just to to build that network of support, which I think is really lacking in, uh, in a lot of uh, post-secondary education, it's there's not enough attention paid to it.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, and you know, I, I can I can appreciate the the trajectory of all that. And I, and you kind of touched on an answer to a question I was thinking about: is how, how do you feel that this impacted the success rate of of your of your students? And you know, success is such an ambiguous term anyway. Like, how do we define it? What's it look like? And from faculty to apprentice to student and all that other stuff, but you know the bottom line is is if you're seeing less students drop out, that's a huge success rate in and of itself, right? Because the trades already suffer from a huge dropout rate once they're in, yeah. but um, you know building that sense of community is 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 huge. That's mm-hmm. that's amazing. Congratulations for doing that because it's not not an easy thing to do, specifically in in trades, right? Where it's just like we're expected to come in, do our work get evaluated again, whatever that looks like. <laughs> and then off you go for the next day. Right. And, uh, yep. it, it can, it's such a competitive environment already. Yes. And, uh, and, and so congratulations. That's really cool. What was, what was your, what was the most surprising thing that you learned through that whole process? Um,
2: it just, how successful it was for everyone, regardless of, where they came from or what their, what their background was or what their particular issues or, you know, talents or whatever, were. it was truly, it is truly a, uh, a way to reach everyone, you know, and it has an impact for everyone.
1: Um, Rita, as you, t- you're talking way through this, I'm actually thinking about, um, I know some universities in the United States, they recognize that for a student going into an undergrad degree of having four years, and it's not a cohort-based four years, they created this structure within the university where you went into, it's kind of like a pod, I guess, and as a first-year freshman, you would go into a group with a first a second a third and a fourth year student and that would be your mini cohort for the whole of your time at the university and obviously you move up the person at the top graduates and then you bring in a new student and they had incredible success and and the attrition rate really shifted significantly mm-hmm. and i mean it's what you're t- sharing with us today as as you're talking about this i'm thinking about how many opportunities there are for this kind of implementation of building this cohesiveness with a, with students and and I think it, it probably resonates with me because as you know I've just had the loneliest longest journey ever within a PhD program and why <laughs> why <laughs> would we do this to people? But um I am thinking about the same way as we're saying the, the strength within the master's programs has actually gained something from opening accepting trades educators in there and, and, you know, the diversity we bring there, but also these ideas how they could be adapted to our undergrad programs. And. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely.
2: Yeah. I think we're, um, light years ahead of academic programs, honestly, in terms of, you know, things like
0: that. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Um, it, interesting with the cohort thing too, because it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, when you're in a kitchen, one of the best things that you can do is in skill and gaining a skill is working with other people. Yeah. And here come these, these new students into a new environment, taking a, 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 they're being exposed to new things. What better place to start that, that, that exposure to a team environment and having to work with other people and especially through barriers, one, a big one like language. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so the very, very interesting, I'd I'd be, I'd be curious to know how that impacts their trajectory through their, their apprenticeship and even into, uh, their, their journey person status. And when they get out and, start maneuvering around in, in in the industry that that would be an interesting long-term study but i'm in mm. that way so
1: one one little little snippet here that Rita hasn't really got to yet because of course we've got so many interesting questions so many things we want to talk about but I happen to know just in case Rita doesn't Bring this forward today, and just in case we might encourage her to come back, is the incredible things that what Rita's telling us about today that she implemented in her face-to-face classroom. But I happen to know that you've actually been able to do that, Rita, in the asynchronous environment when we worked through the pivot. You know, way back in that old twenty twenty, um, and we probably don't have time to dig into this today, but. I know that you've done a lot of work in, um, you know, building the similar kind of community in that same sense within your asynchronous classrooms, and um, with, with just with the sharing out of your LMS, which has been great for other faculty to explore. But I don't know whether you want to take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, um, well, we've been so lucky really in uh, in our experience with, with COVID in that we were able to go back to 70% face-to-face. So um, we didn't have to rely exclusively on the asynchronous environment to create community, um, but we do... Um, I don't know that i've done that much uh, creating of community in the asynchronous environment i've made a very clear learning path for students which builds up to um, you know once they've learned the you know experience gone through the material and done some assignments to sort of help them manipulate the ideas and concepts that they've been exposed to we meet in a zoom session and then they work together in breakout rooms and in a large group to you know further develop their understanding of the um of the concepts that have been presented in that module um i think you know back when we were completely online face to face or sorry completely online after covid struck in march last march um we met every day and the students were so grateful to be meeting. It was like, you know, the rest of the time, I think they were just sitting on a couch. <laughs> they were, so, oh, we're so glad to see everyone, uh, you know, but um, yeah, I, for me, like the asynchronous part has been more about making sure that things are super clear um, for a, uh, a learning path. And I think, Tim, you saw it when you came to our our day of our faculty retreat day. But, um, yeah, that's I don't know how much community I've been successful in building there, except for the Zoom sessions, which are, are never, ever about me talking. I don't do any talking, really, other than to, you know, facilitate discussions mm-hmm. in these Zoom sessions.
0: Yeah. So you've been able to bring students back into the kitchen and, and, and do stuff that that's really fortunate because most of the trades have, have had to stop doing lab work or go on a reduced lab. Has, has that been your experience? Have you had to reduce the number of students you bring? We,
2: we didn't, we were told not that we could only do 70% face-to-face Um, which is pretty significant actually. And um, so, you know, that all that meant really was that all the theory went online. Mm -hmm. So we don't do any theory in classrooms or anything like that anymore. And in my opinion, I don't think we should ever go back to that. I think what we're doing (laughs) with the online, honestly, I think what we're doing with the online environment is far superior to anything we did for theory in the classroom, you know, and, um, the students are able to do it, you know, of course, they have to have it done by a certain date, but you know they can do it in the evening. They can do it in the morning. they can do it whenever they want. So it's more flexible for them. And um, I think it's the material that we give them um, gives them a deeper understanding of what it is that you know they need to be knowing about. um so they they have a better understanding of the learning outcomes by the time they finish the course. And um, you know, just to, they take that knowledge forward with them. and I, I think we're also teaching them, a better way to learn, a more um, in-depth way of learning, a better yeah, mod- metacognition.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, it, and it's, almost, it's, it's almost a reflection, a clearer reflection of what happens in industry, right? Uh, I know when I was in, out in industry, if there was a new piece of equipment that came out, <clears throat> pardon me, or a new technique or a new material, I didn't get a lot of time to read about it on the job site. So where did I do my reading? It was at home. Mm-hmm. And, and my learning, it was at home. Yeah. Or if I, pardon me, or if I had to learn something different about code, if there was a change in the codes, then, you know, I did a lot of that learning at home and that was on my own time. And it was, it was just expected that, that I do that. And I wonder how this change again will, will impact your apprentices, your students as they go out into the, out into industry, because they will be that much more equipped and it's part of it it's ingrained in them to do it now. Mm -hmm. where they're able to learn new material, new information uh, outside of the environment that they're, that they're in during the day. And then they come in and then they can focus in on what they really need to do. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I agree that they're going to be much better at, you know, at researching things and uh, much more comfortable with, um, you know, learning online, whether it's watching YouTube videos or, you know, digging up uh, articles about new techniques or whatever it is, right. They're going to, it's going to feel more natural to them and more like, Oh, you know, Oh, there's this new thing at work. Hmm, okay. I'm going to go home and find out about this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what what have you learned personally over the last couple months since we've pivoted and, you know, we're, we've kind of settled into a a, a new chaos
2: um, it's interesting because I, I kind of look at it from an administrative point of view too. And, um, I, one thing I, I know is that, um, you know, teaching theory to students who've just spent five hours in the bakery and they got up at four o'clock in the morning, they they all, you know, without all of them, even the ones that really are trying to make an effort, it's all they can do to stay awake. Right. Sure. They sit down after, you know, six hours on their feet and they're tired, you know, they're physically tired. And um and so you know you're talking to them or you're showing them a PowerPoint or whatever, and they're all like nah. <laughs> and so I just I just you know and, and really I, I i tried to keep the theory lessons quite light because i could see though they just weren't in any state to uh to take it in so i love the idea of doing things online um it's all there for them to do when they're feeling up to it you know they go home at the end of their six hours and uh, you know have a little nap and then they get up and go do a little bit of theory online you know they're refreshed and they've got a cup of tea and they're in their home and and so on and um i'll never go back I'm I'll fight tooth and nail never to go back. <laughs> but, uh, and the other thing from an administrative point of view is the space factor, right? So if you're not taking up classrooms, um, delivering theory lessons, suddenly you've got space to to deliver other types of uh, programs or other facets of programs. And, uh, you know, that's a growth opportunity, right?
0: a good mindset i like that what are you what are you looking forward to as we turn this year from 2020 to 21 what are you looking forward to the most this coming year oh
2: well, i do break
0: it down what, what are you looking forward to the most this term
2: <laughs> <laughs> um well I, I just you know i'm settling into this new job and i'm not teaching anymore it's a full-time administrative position so um but you know Uh, Stepping into the culinary arts program, um, you know, and just sort of seeing what's going on there after having been away for a few years. Uh, It's interesting, you know, just there's a lot of, I would say, demoralized students there. Um, You know, there's lots of absenteeism because, you know, we haven't been able to enforce our um, attendance policies because of COVID. So students don't show up, which demoralizes the students that are there. And so it's just kind of a, the instructors are a bit, I would say, demoralized by, you know, the fact that they come to class and they've got two or three students where there's supposed to be eight and, you know, five of them haven't shown up. And so um, I'm I'm hoping to sort of be able to turn that around a little bit um, so that more students are coming on a regular basis. And, uh, yeah, I just I want to um, I want to just kind of make make life a little bit better for for the program for the instructors and the students. And I think I can do that. Um, yeah, I, for the rest of this year, you know, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm just constantly involved in, um, like we're starting, like we haven't been able to sell our food, you know, we're making oh, all this food, right. baking products, culinary products. We've been donating at all the food banks, right. Cause none of the cafeterias aren't open. So just now we're starting to get a few little venues open. So I'm working on that. So I'm hoping that lifts spirits. So we're going to start a breakfast service next Tuesday. I mean, we have the breakfast service, but you know, we're just giving it away to the students. But we're going to do a an grab and go breakfast service where people order online and come 10 minutes later to pick up. And then we've got the baking program offering uh, products in a the campus store. They've got this little you know venue set up for for us to sell our baking products. And, you know, it's just things opening up a little bit more and, and, you know, students love seeing customers lined up to buy their food, right. It's very, um, it's very affirming and um, that hasn't been happening. So um, I'm hoping that will lift spirits as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now you've taken some trips abroad with some of your students. Um, Recently uh, you were in Belgium and France, like, yeah. What is What does that look like? And how does that, how does that unfold?
2: Uh, so we've been making, um, doing these field, we call them field schools and, um, we started them in 2012. And, and so we do the Brussels and, and Paris one every two years. So I've gone five times, um, Martin Barnett and I originally designed the field school back in 2012. And, um, went on it um, it's it's a tremendous amount of planning of course um, we usually take about anywhere between 25 and 35 students yeah um, and then we'll have like four four or five or six um instructors that come along as well so it's usually a group of about 40. we have taken students from other institutions so um, last january when we went we had i think five students and an instructor from Camosun we've taken instructors and students from BCC and, uh, we had an, No, oh, that was a different trip. Um, yeah. So BCC and Camosun. Um, so basically the way that the way it works is we've got, you know, a laid out series of activities and, um, you know, we just have an itinerary that we follow. So in Brussels, uh, that's where we start off and we usually, um, we've done different, ways of doing it. We'll fly to Paris or um, Frankfurt and then either or Amsterdam and we'll either fly to Brussels or take a bus to Brussels and um, we're there for about five days and we visit the Barry Calibo chocolate factory just outside of Brussels. So we'll get a tour there and a two-hour workshop for the students in their kitchens and then we spend um, two days at Prurato's which is a really big baking ingredient company and they have fantastic pastry and baking chefs there. Um, and so we do um, the students get to do four different workshops while they're at spend two days at Prurato's. And so wow. we, that is that's just so epic, even even for the instructors, because just these people <laughs> are so talented. Right. And, yeah. and really, we see so many new things. Um and then we also of course Brussels is known for chocolate and yeah. um on every street corner is another fabulous chocolate shop so we do a tour I and mean, we go we do walking tours of the chocolate shop. so you can go in and you know it's <laughs> good that you're walking the whole pictures, time <laughs> Yeah picture, take pictures and and um and byproducts and so on to try. So that's Brussels, and then we take a bus to um, to, uh, to Paris, and en route we stop in Lille, which is in the north of France at Le Safra, which is probably the biggest yeast production, yeast producer in the world. And so we spend an afternoon there and do a four hour workshop um, in their kitchens and, and um, listen to some lectures about yeast. And then we continue on to Paris, and we the, high, the the big thing, the big draw in Paris is a, um, a four day baking show, like a, a professional baking um, show that features all sorts of producers of baking products and and packaging and um, you know all sorts of things. Tons of baking demonstrations going on, and uh, just it's huge. It's it's massive. And so that's four days. And then we have three days of organized walking tours in different areas of the city where we visit um, famous pastries, or sorry, patisseries, pastry shops, um, bakeries. Um, We go to, um, you know, plus things like charcuterie and and boulangeries and so on. And, um, and, you know, and and we can go in and, um, you know, buy products, take pictures and so on. And we have a budget, so you know, because of course the students are are usually pretty strapped for cash. So we have a budget where the instructors can buy stuff for the students, like you know, we'll go in and okay, the specialty is heat this here, and so we'll buy enough that we can cut it up and share it out with all the students, so they can try things even if they can't afford to actually buy something. So that's three days of that, and um, and then there's a couple of days, you know, that are free days um, for the instructors and the students. So if they wanted to go a bit further afield to um, you know, like go out to, um, Versailles or something for a day trip. They could do something like that. And, uh, yeah, so that's pretty much the trip and we stay in hostels all the way. It is not luxurious accommodation, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it gets, it gets the job done and it costs about, we've been able to do it for about $3,600 per student. And so that's their flights, their accommodation, all the transfers, um, breakfast uh oh uh we always do a last sort of celebratory meal on the, the night before we leave and this year we went to a place called le Bleu. it's just it's in the Gare de lyon uh, train station it's a uh, been around for like 150 years and it's decorated in the art deco style it's the most beautiful huge place oh my god it was fantastic and the food was really good too um so when we did that this year anyway, Oh, and we went we went to uh Le Cordon Bleu and um and did a wine and food pairing meal there, several courses. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was really, really nice too and really interesting. Oh. Uh, yeah. And, so and, yeah, it's um it's a it's an amazing trip and it's a pretty good price too. So.
0: and obviously with COVID you won't be doing that this year, but you know, is that something that you would do every year or every second year? It's,
2: it's every second year. And before COVID, we were sort of planning on doing a trip every year. Cause now we've gone twice to, um, uh, whatchamacallit, to Italy, to, um, Florence and the areas around Florence. And so we did that. Um, we would have gone there this January or this February or whatever. Um, but we couldn't, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh my and that's goodness. a more
2: culinary focused trip.
0: Sure and you're gone 10 14 days
2: it's it's usually um 16 days including the oh. traveling days
1: yeah
0: wow so roughly around 200 bucks a day mm-hmm. they they're going to you know these oh man sign me up i I'd, I'd go i'd carry bags the whole time just you know, let we, me carry the lots, bags. We have
2: lots of offerings for things
0: like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's, I'd even sponsor somebody. I I'd, well, don't I'd know if I'd pay double, but anyway, that sounds awesome. That That's totally cool. So what's, what's been one piece of advice that's been a total train wreck for you, whether it's in your apprenticeship or in your, in your red seal experience, or even in faculty?
2: Well, I, I I saw that question. I couldn't really come up with anything and you know, I usually recognize bad advice and just don't do anything about it. But um, yeah, I don't really have a good answer for you on that one.
0: Well, that's okay. That, that's a good thing. <laughs> so let's flip it around. What's been uh, one piece of advice that's been uh, a total game changer for you?
2: <laughs> you should apply for a job as a relief instructor at VIU. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. 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 That, that's I I I want to dig in not not now but it'd be interesting to go back and talk about your interview experience cuz it didn't sound like like you know you were too excited about it and it was like ah well it's here and you know I I remember other people from our departments would be like they were dying to get in. And, uh, it's just like, how did they get your phone number? Like just phone you up out of the blue and go, yeah, we, we've heard oh, about my you. Ex,
2: my ex husband gave Debbie my phone number. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm his supervisor now. Cause he still works there.
0: Oh, <laughs> really? To...
2: Don't tell the union. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Don't tell the union. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be a whole new conversation for a different episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mercy. That's good. All right. Well, uh, Rita, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us on on our podcast. And uh, I hope it's been enjoyable for you. And uh, I'm sure there's a, there's another episode down the pipe I'm just waiting for you to uh, to come and, and take part. Uh, we do a Fab Five at the end, just to kind of mm. get uh, a little bit... Uh, I don't know. To let people get to know you a little bit more, although though this has been a great episode to do that, but um, five quick questions. They don't have to be quick answers, just five quick questions. And then uh, that'll do it. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Favorite food?
2: Pie. Any kind of pie.
0: Pie. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I love pie. Oh, that's, that's good. Favorite movie?
2: Favorite movie. Well, I, have a, I, I don't know. But I have a favorite show, a TV okay. show, um, yep. uh, The Handmaid's Tale. I really like that.
0: Oh, decent. Yeah.
2: Looking forward to the next series, the next uh, series of it.
0: That's very good. Favorite See, band or genre of music?
2: I listen a lot to uh, Eva Cassidy. I don't know if you know who she is,
0: but no, I don't. You
2: well, know, she she's dead. Um she died back in 2006 I think and when she was only like 24 years old but she or maybe she was 26 years old but um she had cancer Oh but she's a a jazz well I wouldn't say that she's kind of a genre defying singer
1: okay. and
2: um and she she sings all sorts of she sings blues she sings gospel she sings jazz she sings nice. standard she sings and she has the most beautiful voice if you want to sort of hear the ultimate Eva Cassidy, just Uh just, uh, listen to Eva Cassidy singing over the rainbow on YouTube. Like I, it is the definitive definitive version. So beautiful.
0: Okay. That's cool.
2: Eva Cassidy,
0: Eva Cassidy. I'm writing that down. I'm going to check that out. What's your favorite go-to tech right now, whether it's an app or a piece of equipment, what's your favorite go-to? Well,
2: I got a new Apple. I got an Apple watch for my birthday. So I'm, I'm playing around with that kind of um it keeps telling me to breathe and stand and all these like, leave me alone leave i forgot alone. to put it in i forgot to put it in sleep mode or whatever it is one yeah. night and at like four in the morning it goes it's time for you to stand I was like
0: yeah go me. away yeah go ahead. and now Apple knows exactly where you are 24 hours a day seven days a week
2: yeah yep. well I so don't good. go very very interesting places so.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, most influential person in your life?
2: I'd be my mom. She was, uh, she, uh, when I was 12, my father died and, um, she was left on her own with five kids and, um, she went out to work and she got her, um, her CGA her certified general accountant designation by the time she was 50. And my dad died when she was 42. And then she went on to become um, CEO of Clark Freightways, which is the largest refrigerated trucking company in BC. And um, she worked, you know, until she was 85 years old or and even dabbled a bit after that. She just died actually like um, a week before COVID hit. Um, she, yeah, but I mean, really like time, her timing as always was impeccable. And uh, yeah, so, you know, she always encouraged me to sort of stretch myself and, and um, I, you know, she was so proud of me when I got my master's. She was just beside herself. She threw a huge party for me and came to my graduation, of course, and just was so, um, so proud to because uh, I wasn't the first one in my family to get any kind of um post secondary degree. And um yeah, so yeah, definitely my mom.
0: That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Great. Well, Rita, thanks so much again for being a part of the show. It's been fabulous to have you here. We will reach out to you again <laughs> and uh, and bring you back because there's, there's a ton of more experiences and we didn't even get to talk a lot about pedagogy and how you uh, have grown in that area, but uh, maybe we'll bring you back to talk about that.
2: Well, I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me. It's been, really, it's been fun.
0: That's good. How's your first experience of the podcast? I think it went okay.
2: Yeah, I
0: think it went fine. Good. You've been laughing a lot. So that's a good sign. All right. Hey everybody, thanks again for taking the time to listen to the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast with Rita. Lots of cool stuff in here, especially about the cohorts and how that's really changed the atmosphere and the progression of their students in their program. Really excited to hear that and kind of encouraged to start trying that in some of my own practices here. Thanks again for taking the time. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, would you mind doing that? And if you have subscribed, would you mind doing two little things for us? Tell other people about the show. Uh, If you found some value, some humor, some uh, things that were good about this uh, podcast uh, that keeps bringing you back, tell other people about the show. We'd love it if you do that. And I'd also love it if you'd leave a review for us. That would be awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. There are a couple of great guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. We have George Valencianos coming on. We have Robin DeRosa. We have Terry Green and Anne-Marie Scott uh, and a bunch of other people coming up. And uh, this is going to be a great season. I love this podcast. I love the fact that you're taking time to listen to it. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Value you for everything that you're doing. Have a great week. We'll see you around. A blue today